Good morning, Journey Church. It is uh, my privilege to be with you this morning as we come around God's Word, and we're going to study out of John's Gospel and chapter 8. So I'm going to invite you in just a moment to close your eyes. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to read the Scripture, and I want you to just concentrate on the words of of the Gospel from John's Gospel and chapter 8. So would you bow your head as we pray? And then I'm going to read the Word of God. It's not going to be up on the screen, so if you open your eye and sneak a look, it's not there. That's okay. But John chapter eight is what we're gonna look at. Let's pray. Gracious, merciful God, we come before you humbled by the gift of salvation. Humbled by the gift of the gospel that declares us to no longer be slaves to sin, but to be free, free in you. So we come before you as we listen attentively for the word of God as we read it and as we proclaim it together that you by your spirit would illuminate our hearts and that our lives would be transformed. So open, open our hearts to you, God, that we might be people that glorify you in all that we say and do for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Reading from John's Gospel, then chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They say this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus, against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once, at once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And then we jump down to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and, if, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. This morning we're seeking to understand the message found in the song that we'll sing at the end uh, entitled, Who You Say I Am, and the scripture that it's based upon. The text of the song is relatively simple, yet there is a profound message contained within the words. A message that frankly, if those of us who claim to be believers and followers of Jesus. 
if we actually, truly believed it, not only would the church be transformed, but there, there, would, a, there would be a radical transformation around the world because this truth is both restoratory and revolutionary. The text of the words are pretty simple. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Who the son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. The song goes on to declare, who the son sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. In my father's house, there is a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I'm chosen, not forsaken. You are who you, I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. So this is a song by Hillsong Worship. And, and when they put this song out, they, they, they wrote these words. This is what they said about the, the theme of the song, they say, is from John 8, which is you will, be, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. It's a real declaration of identity, they say. When they introduced this song into our church, they read John 8, the scripture this song is based on. It talks about how a slave has no place in the family home. But we've, we've been brought into the family. Then we have this identity as part of God's family and that identity is an identity of freedom. An identity of freedom. Today we're gonna to look at three different ways that we think about identity. And the first one is understanding how, how we identify ourselves. Names are part of the process for identifying. You'll introduce yourself. So let me introduce myself properly. Uh, Alex said that my name is Sam Knight. Yeah, that's true to a point. Actually, my real name is James Michael George Knight. But I have been called Sam since before I was born. So it just stuck as I grew up. So literally, I've got three siblings, so there's four kids in our family, and people in our village where I was growing up, they used to think that there were, there were five kids. There was my sister Jill, my sister Julie, uh, brother Julian, my sister Jennifer, and, and, and James, and then Sam. It was, it was really good if I got in trouble. I could just use the names that nobody knew, so... <laughs> But I'm called James Michael George Knight, but everybody calls me Sam. A little confusing, but that's who I am. And no, I don't like green eggs <laughs> and ham. But names are important. You know, you've probably heard of Prince Charles, Prince of Wales. He was once married to Lady Diana, Prince of Wales. He's the father of, of William and the other one of whom we no longer speak. Um, <laughs> but his name, this is his title. His, he's, got a, he's got a long name. He is known as His Royal Highness Prince Charles, Philip Arthur George, Prince of Wales, Royal Knight, Companion of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Grand Master and Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Honourable Order of the Bath, Member of the Order of, of Merit, Knight of the Order of Australia, Companion of the Queen's Service Order, Member of Her Majesty's most Honourable Privy Council. I always get a giggle with that one because in the UK, where I come from, everybody knows the Privy as being the outhouse. <laughs> so he's Lord, he's Lord, 
you know, whatever of the outhouse. I think it actually technically means something else, but you know, who cares? Aide de Camp, Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, Duke of Rothsay, Earl of Carrick, Baron, Baron of Renfrew, Lord of the Isles, Prince and Great Steward of Scotland, and a few more which probably mattered to him, but don't matter to me. But it's a way that he's identified. There are also many other ways that we identify ourselves. It's, it's our family background. I pastored churches in Wales, I pastored churches in Texas and Florida, and I pastored a church here in town before. But but now I work as a manufacturer's rep for different organisations, different manufacturers. And growing up in the churches around where I was pastoring and the churches I was involved in, I was always known as Clive Knight's father. Clive, my dad, was a pastor in Wales for, for 30-something years in the same village, and, and everybody knew my father. So I grew up as Clive Knight's son. When I moved to, to Texas, first of all, it, it was fun because now that I was a pastor and people got to know me, when my father would come to visit, suddenly he was Sam Knight's father. Felt good. I come to Journey and now Alex introduces me as Gethin Knight's father. Hang on, what's happened? We are identified by our family background, where we come from, our nationality. So I'm very proud of my Welsh heritage. Uh, by our ethnicity, by our personality assessments. Yes, I'm a number eight on that Enneagram thing. And yes, if you want to get it done, ask me and we'll get it done. I might hurt a few of you ones and twos maybe on the process, but you know, we'll get it done. I'm an ENFT on the Myers-Briggs, my spirit animal hippopotamus. (laughs) By what we do... By, it, by what we do is how also we're known. I'm a, I've been a pastor and now I'm in business. You know, by our education. I actually went to a real university. Okay, if I was in Missoula, they would like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're known by our gender, by our height, by our body type, by our sexuality, by our political affiliations, by our religious traditions, by the age bracket that we're in. I'm a Gen Xer. And so don't go all boomery on me. Um, By our star sign. My star sign is supernova. Yeah, I read today that today will be explosive and you will brighten someone's world. Some of you are going to have to look that up on Google. We're known by the home we live in or the house that we own. Our economic status is really important about our identity about the hairstyle that we have. I said in the first service and Bob was sitting right there. I said, I went into um, to the hairdresser. I said, I want a Bob Schwan cut. So they cut my hair. They shaved my head. Sorry, two days later, it all grew back. So, you know, Bob said he didn't like me. We're known by the cars that we drive, by other people's opinion of who we are. We're really trying to find a way, honestly, of just belonging. So we add all of these labels to us so that we can really be accepted by someone. We want someone to notice who we are and we want them to bring us into their circle. We want to belong and so we bring these ideas of identity. And so our identity has been tied up to our understanding of our value and our worth. But we allow others and we allow ourselves even to determine what that worth is. We estimate our value by what we think of ourselves and by what others think of us. Our reputations, ultimately, we're talking about our egos and and they all get wrapped up together. And we get all twisted up. We get confused. And we have ultimately lost sight 
of truly who we really are. So I want us to walk through this passage of Scripture this morning. Let's, let's take a look at this Scripture, particularly uh, it's an interesting portion episode in the life of Jesus because it wasn't, it wasn't just a nice, a nice story. It was a very difficult moment for Jesus. You will see that it gives context to why we can trust God's claim on us and our true identity. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to John chapter eight. And we're gonna walk through this, this passage of scripture. Verse two, it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and the people came to him and he sat down and, they, and taught them. I wanna give you some context of where this passage is. So John is writing about this episode. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples and, and a big throng of, uh, of Jewish people attending the celebration of the festival of booths in Jerusalem at the temple. It's the commemoration of their, their escape from enslavement out of Egypt. So you have to remember that particular point. It's really important for a little bit later. So it's a commemoration of being released from slavery out of Egypt. And so Jesus has been hanging out on the Mount of Olives, probably near the Garden of Gethsemane. They build booths, little shelters, very, very basic things in celebration and remembrance of that moment. And Jesus has been going with all the other Jewish people into the temple to experience the ritual worship that took place over a course of eight days. And so Jesus gets there and there's always people around Jesus. You know, Jesus could say, oh, I'm on my way to church and I don't really care about you. I don't care that you're crying in the back of the seat of the car. You know, all the stuff that happens on our way to church. But Jesus cares about people. So what does he do? He notices them and he sits down and he teaches them. He teaches them the value that they have in the kingdom. He talks about all the good things that God's intended for them as his people because he cares about them. It's because he wants people to know truly who they are. So verse three goes on to tell us something about how we understand our identity when it comes to it being dictated by others. This whole episode is an episode of identity upon someone being dictated by others. So verse three talks about the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. So this woman, poor woman. There was a constant and growing tension between Jesus and the teachers of the law. Jesus had just the day before stirred up the people and with his teachings and the Jewish authorities had debated over who Jesus was. The character Nicodemus that you'll find earlier in the episodes of the Gospel of John who came to see Jesus. He had defended Jesus and Jesus' true identity. So they initiate this test and, and they want to trip Jesus up. The awful reality of, though, of their despising attitude towards God and towards Jesus and their hatred for Jesus is seen in the subject of this test. A woman who is alleged to have been caught in adultery. They had complete disregard for her humanity. In her book, Jennifer Knight writes uh, on the 40 encounters with Jesus, my heart goes out to this woman. As the story goes, she is dragged from an act of adultery, brought before the men in the temple courts. Some commentators would go as far as saying they did not give her time to dress. You must imagine the humiliation that this woman experienced standing, trying to hide her naked body and shame. 
She must have been so fearful looking into the eyes of hatred from these men that wanted nothing more than for her life, for her to die a horrendous death. Imagine the scene, wrong or right, She's, in terms of what she's been accused of, wrong or right, the image of this woman being dragged into the center of the crowd speaks to the true attitude of humanity and toward one another and particularly to other people's sins. Whether or not we are guilty of sin or of the sin of which we can be so quickly accused, we all still deserve some sense of decency. But this poor woman, she has been dragged before the crowd. Just imagine this. You come into church on a Sunday morning and your name is up on the screen and there's a list of all of the sins that you have committed that your friends and your family have called in and said, oh, you ought to hear what he did this week. And it's all there for everybody to see. How would you feel? How would you feel? You would probably walk back out the door because you're embarrassed, truly. Having everything denoted up on the screen would be a horrible experience. And for this woman, that's exactly what's happened. They've dragged her there in front of everybody. And it's the reactions of the others that are interesting. These people, this crowd, this would not have been a quiet scene. If you're found out about a sin and your sin is different from anybody else's, it takes, it takes its toll. There would be a collective desire to ensure that you were appropriately dealt with and sufficiently punished for the bad things that you've done. Yeah, and we would feel justified in doing it too. Philip Yancey says in his book, Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently from they, how they do. Think about it for yourself. You judge others. You know the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. Words hurt us. You must understand that the crowd would have been responding to this woman with such anger, shouting, no, screaming insults at her, spitting upon her, probably kicking her as she was dragged before them, naked, ashamed and afraid for her life. Verse four and five says, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Her identity therefore now, her value is summed up in this accusation against her. As the song declares, you are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I want you to understand as we study the scripture that, that reveals the desire of God towards you and his mercy dealing with you, dealing with me, dealing with us. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. So while the scribes and the Pharisees seek to test Jesus in terms of the right and proper response to the woman caught in adultery, they care nothing about the woman. She's valueless. She's something that they can forget, that they can throw away. They state that she should be stoned to death for, the, for doing what she has done. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone her, they say. We've got to note something here. We've got to note the distortion of, of truth because that's what the world does to us when it comes to our identity. They distort the truth about us. And they're doing exactly the same thing. They've distorted the truth about the law even. 
We've got to understand that the law says, yes, an adulterer and an adulteress shall be put to death. Leviticus chapter uh, 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulterer shall be surely put to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the, and the woman shall, shall you purge the evil from Israel. It's actually suggested that they don't stone. There's no stoning mentioned there. It's actually traditional, more, more traditional to think of them being strangled, just in case you, you want to know. But, but please note, the law states both parties to be put to death. Here's the problem. There's only one. Only one of the guilty parties is brought before Jesus, the woman. It's relatively easy to distort truth. They want to twist it, you know, and, and the world does it to us. But think about it. It's not just the politicians and the media that does this. It's you and I too. And these Pharisees, these scribes, they were twisting, distorting the truth about the law. Next verse says in verse six, this they said to test him that they might bring charges against him. So the plan, again, disregard for the woman. They don't really care about the law. They're distorting the truth. Their plan is to find a way to, to get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities. That they could go and say, if Jesus said, yes, stone her, that they could go and say that Jesus, you know, to the Roman Empire, he is trying to take over all acts of understanding about life and death. But Jesus doesn't satisfy them. Jesus doesn't satisfy their distortion of the law. They would quickly try to seize any moment they could. It's, it just shows the hatred that these people had, these religious leaders and the schemes that they had. Jesus understands the lies and the schemes of Satan who brings accusations against you and I to persuade us that, that, that we don't belong, that we're not good enough, or tries even to tell us that that God could never love me. God could never love you. The second part of that verse, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. So there's no record of what's written. Um, maybe he was writing out a shopping list for his mother Mary before he goes home. There's no, there's no understanding truthfully because it's not recorded as to what he says. There are some scholars that suggest that Jesus actually wrote down the name of a very popular prostitute that would have been known to the whole group surrounding this one particular woman. Another suggests that this was a list of sins that the surrounding man had committed that Jesus knew about. Another reason probably aligns more if you look at the whole witness of, of scripture and the tradition of the Jewish people that the law that was broken, the commandment that was broken was supposed to be written down by the priest in the sand, in the dust. And that the two people were supposed to be brought and their names would be written on that dust as well. And there were supposed to be two witnesses for any accusation, two witnesses. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. So Jesus is writing, but they only brought the woman. It was a violation of the law itself. There was no priest to write in the dust. It was a violation of the law. So writing in the, just, in, the, in the dust, Jesus showed these accusers that they were not keeping the law. There was no priest present, but Jesus took on that, 
that role. There were, no, there were no witnesses. They brought only the woman, not the man. And both must be presented. These scribes and these Pharisees, they were ignoring or distorting the truth. They had set the truth aside. Do you see in the context of your own identity, the world around you has ignored the truth. They, they have set aside the, the law, the gospel, the law of God. They perverse God's intention towards you and they lie to you, telling you that, that your identity is not what, what God says, but what they get to dictate about you and persuade you to make you believe this distortion of the truth that is contained in Jesus Christ himself. And they're wrong. It doesn't serve you. It, it destroys you. The selfishness of humanity simply means that they ignore the truth of God because they want you to be miserable and they want you to be more miserable than they are. That's the truth of the world that's around us. But Christ is the great healer who offers up help and the redemptive truth that is contained within him towards you. Verse seven says, as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said, to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. This was not an orderly situation. Uh, you know, if you've ever been to court, and we won't ask why, <laughs> but if you've ever been to court, you know that there's an orderly procedure that takes place. And you can actually be held in contempt of court if you disrupt the proceedings. There was no contentment of court because this was not happening in the same way that you would expect it to. The barragement upon the woman, the kicking, the spitting, the abuse, and it, and it was a constant barragement of Jesus. Tell us, tell us, tell us, stone her, stone her, stone her. You can imagine this chaos. Jesus is bowing down, riding down in the, in the dust and he stands up among them and he says, whoever was at without sin, Cast the first stone. Now we think about all the sins that we've committed and, and we point that towards this. But, but if you look in the context of this particular passage of Scripture and you look at the text, what's really being pointed out is the fact that this statement is about that particular sin. So imagine Jesus is saying, any of you who have not committed adultery, then you can cast the first stone. There was a determination on the part of the Pharisees and scribes. They wanted Jesus to tell them something that wasn't true. And so Jesus turns it around. They had declared an identity over this woman as sinner. Sinner. That's what they were accusing her of, that she was an adulteress. This was the label that they were giving her. You and I, we, we experience the same thing and we receive it from people over and over again. Even happens in the church situation. You see, religion tells me that I'm sinful. I'm not here because I've got it all together. I'm a perfect human being. By no means, ask my wife. But I stand here broken, but as called by God into a grace relationship with him and in a relationship with Christ, we're transformed. It changes everything. But these people were accusing her. And so Jesus pushes it back towards their hypocrisy. You calling her a sinner? Yep, you guys too. You guys too. It was not unusual, it would seem. And once more, he bends down and wrote on the ground, probably just reemphasizing all of the things that we've talked about. Jesus continues to press that point of hypocrisy. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, the scripture tells us. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Remember, Jesus was saying, he who is without sin, this particular sin, may cast the first stone. Well, notice that they start with the older ones first. They've had a lot more experience with this. The recognition of their own reality began to sink in. Their own sense of hypocrisy became an identity for them. Note the eldest began leaving, then, then much as happens, the whole group leaves. Jesus was left alone with this woman, stood in front of him. In truth, there are none that can righteously accuse others, for all of us are guilty of some form of sin or another, yet we, we do stand accused. We do stand accused. A third point about understanding our identity is declared by Christ is important because it's the rest of the story. Remember, we stand accused. Just as this woman stands accused, Jesus stood up, it says, in verse 10, and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The stark realization that all the accusers were gone. Jesus had, been expo had exposed their sin of hypocrisy and they did not like it. We must understand this is an equalization taking place. Here Jesus stands up and all have left. It's the true nature of equality in the world. Before God, none of us are free from guilt. Not one of us can claim that we're without sin. As I said, religious tells us that we are sinners. But a relationship with Christ says I'm forgiven, that I am a child of God. Just like the words of the song, you are for me not against me. Jesus clears the air and all the falseness of what the world wants you to believe about your identity and gives us, gives us space to let his truth soak in. First John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus said, no one, Jesus said to this woman, where are they? And she responds in verse 11, no one. They're all gone. There's no one here, Lord. And Jesus says, no, neither do I con condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. He doesn't just leave her where she is. He doesn't uh, condemn her, but he also doesn't condone her. And that's important for us to think about in terms of our identity. The woman is not told that who she is has been okay. What she's been doing is okay. And she's not told what she does is okay. She's been told there's something else, there's something different. Go and sin no more. She has shown that what she has done and what she does isn't to dictate her identity. The song we're looking at this morning says, free at last, he has ransomed me, his grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. I can imagine Jesus standing there, holding her on her shoulders, looking into her eyes, telling her he doesn't condemn her, telling her that she needs to sin no more. And, and, and he's kicking the dust uh, where he's been writing all those sins and that law. And he's declaring that she has been set free. Jesus washes away our sin with his blood. Ephesians chapter two, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So it's not what we do or how we do it. It's not about what we've done. It's about how he declares it. Jesus looked upon her with compassion and a desire for her to be restored through the power of his love. 
to declare over her the truth of her identity, that is, that she's a child of God. Reuben Morgan says in, uh, about this song, he says, the song is about freedom, free from the tyranny of self, free from the opinion of doubters, free from the chains of our past and the hopelessness of life without God. God's kindness has brought us in from the outside and made us royalty. God's truth over us is final. Sometimes it's good to remind ourselves what God says over us. In the next couple of verses, at verse 31 and through verse 36, there's this conversation that Jesus has with some of those that had believed him. And they ask you know, about this. And Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never enslaved, been enslaved to anyone. How, how is it that you say that we can be free? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The people around Jesus at this time of the episode, they had been told a, a, a truth that had been abused and distorted. They had been told, yes, as God declares, that they were the chosen people, that God had given them the law to obey so that through them salvation might come. But they had distorted the truth. They'd become arrogant amongst the peoples. And the arrogance and the self-deceit had overwhelmed them. They believed what the teachers had told them. And now Jesus is correcting that distortion. They had this weird, strange, untrue understanding of their own identity. Look at this verse. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Oh my gosh. Listen to these people. How arrogant they are. They're nothing but sons of Abraham. I mean, it's a distortion of the truth. Why do I say that? Remember back, Jesus was there celebrating in the festival of booths, which is the commemoration of their escape from slavery from Egypt. How dare they distort the truth of their own history? They were there celebrating the release from freedom, to freedom from slavery from Egypt. And this wasn't the first time. You know, they had Egypt, they had to deal with those people from Babylon. And now they're sitting under the authority of the Roman Empire with the guards and the army ready to pounce. How arrogant of them to think. We're sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Uh, duh. They were so confused. Talk about confusing. So often we get confused about our own identities and the world doesn't help us. But let me illustrate it a little bit like this. So let's think about a couple. They're, let's say they're from Montana. They go to visit my home, my home in Wales um, and they, they're touring around Wales and they come to this little place in North Wales and it's known in Wales because, and across, across England because it's the longest place name in the UK. It's 58 letters in the place name. If you put the map up, maybe we can see it there. Okay, so, so they're driving around and they see this sign and they think, oh, that'd be fun to go, to go there and they start trying to pronounce the name of the place, Tanfaya, Fulthgwyn, Gilgerth, Ilkwyn, uh, drob, ulf, plant, tassilio, go, go, go. Yeah, that's easy, isn't it? It means where Bob Schwann lives. Actually means St. Mary's Church in the hollow of White Hazel near a rapid whirlpool and the church of St. Tylio near the Red Cave. That's what it means. So they're debating how to say this. Tanfire, Thuthgwyn, 
go, go, go. And, and they're, they're struggling with this. And so they think, well, it's time. We're a little hungry. Let's go in and get some food. So they find a place to go eat. And they walk in and they, they say to the, to the young lady at the counter, uh, will you help us settle a debate? Will you, will you uh, pronounce for us where we are? But please do it slowly. So affirmatively, she, she nods and she leans over the counter. And she says, Burger King. <laughs> Talk about confusing. These people and, and the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were confused about their own history, their own identity. And we do it to ourselves. We confuse ourselves about our own identities because we listen to what the world says and not to what Jesus tells us and dictates to us as being truth. You see, the scripture says the truth will set you free. What the truth is, is what Jesus declares. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he declares. He see, Jesus is himself the truth. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. So as the song declares, in my father's house, there is a place for me. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. So I ask you today, have you understood and received that freedom that is found only truly in Christ? Do you understand your true identity? Or are you caught in the trap of your own sin and the sin of the world around you? Are you a slave to sin and fear? We sang earlier, we are, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are children of God. The reason why the world does this to try to persuade us otherwise is because they have never understood the truth either. They do not know the true forgiveness that comes in Christ. They don't know the freedom that is found in Jesus. They don't know the love that Jesus has poured out upon the cross of Calvary for you and for me. Last weekend, Pastor Jim Keener uh, spoke about the blessing, but in so doing, he, 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 he said this phrase, and I wrote it down, I thought it was really cool. He says, as a child of God, you have God's smile, the divine smile of God, he called it. It was beautiful. And it just made me think as a pastor, I've been visiting many different homes over the years. I've been pastoring in churches and, and anybody I visit, there, there was always that corridor, that hallway um, that had the pictures on the wall. Do you know what I'm talking about? Grandma probably has it. You might even have it in your own house. It's all the pictures of all the family from way, way back. I call it the rogues gallery, but, but it brings people to be familiar with their families and remember good times. This is what I got from Pastor Jim last week, that divine smile. I see Jesus and God the Father walking through the corridor of heaven. And he's got pictures of his children, his family, you and me. And he's walking through and he says, this one, this one's mine. I'm so proud of this one. It's a beautiful concept, being, being a child of God, believing and being accepted in God. John, 1 John 3 says, see what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You've received a new identity. As the song says, he who sets us free. If the son sets us free, there's free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Friends, I want you to forget about the people that are next to you. People that uh, you love, yes, and they love you. But I need you to hear this, this, this declaration that comes from God's word 
over you. And there's so many places and times when God says, this is who you are. When God declares over you, you're mine, you're special. You see, God declares that you are chosen. You are called of God. You are loved. You are a new creation. You are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You are forgiven. You are redeemed from the curse of the law. You are, you are redeemed. You're blessed. You're victorious. You're set free. You're strong in the Lord. And you're healed by His wounds. You are reconciled to God and, and joined heirs with Christ. You are more than a conqueror. You're accepted by Him and you're made complete in Him. You are dead to sin, Scripture declares. You are celebrated and He delights in you for you are His joy. And you're made alive in Christ. You are the beloved of God. You are one with Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. For you, you, you are a child of God. Amen.
Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.